You're riding on the Denial Bus with Patty Crouch and Holly Gates. I'm really excited about this next interview that you're about to hear. But I needed to tell you a few things. First of all, the reason why you don't hear Holly's voice is because she wasn't there. Um, She had stuff to do in Family First, and that's what we do. It was Family First with Heather, and it's me Family First with the podcast because it's always Family First. But we didn't want to lose the opportunity to um, interview Deb Oppenheimer from Foster so we went ahead and booked it, and I did it by myself. So it was my first solo interview. I learned a little bit. It was really good. Um, and here is the first part, because it was so good, I really couldn't cut anything out. I didn't cut anything out. So here is the first part of Foster with Deborah Oppenheimer. So I'm super excited today because we have an amazing guest on. She is phenomenal in her own right. She has won an Academy Award for a, another documentary that she made, uh, Into the Arms of Strangers, Stories of Kinder Transport, which I will watch one day, but I don't have the emotional bandwidth to get myself there, but I will watch it because it's definitely going to be a tearjerker, just like the one she just produced was. Um, Foster, you, you heard our review on it. We had nothing but great things to say because it was done so well. We have Deborah Oppenheimer on who produced and created Foster, the documentary. Co-conceived. Co-conceived. That's the perfect word for it. (laughs) Co-conceived is the perfect word for it. How did you conceive it anyway? Like, what was your inspiration on, how did it come about? I had done Into the Arms of Strangers uh, with Mark Jonathan Harris, the writer-director, and it was my first documentary. I'm primarily a television producer, and it was a fantastic experience. The research and the people we got to know and the impact it had, um, the awareness it brought to a subject that people didn't speak about, the kind of transport, uh, was really, really, really rewarding. I got to wake up every day feeling like my life had purpose. And when it was all done, and we did win the Academy Award, we won a couple of other awards, um, we got people talking to their children and their grandchildren about their experience. We were speaking in schools. Um, I always wanted to do another documentary. And I was busy working at Warner Brothers on a lot of television shows. And Mark was teaching at USC and doing his thing. But we said that we wanted to work together again. And I have one of these children in my life, so... One day I mentioned the subject of foster care to Mark as a possible topic that we could do a documentary around. And to my enormous um, excitement, Mark said that's a subject that hasn't been done right previously. And that's always important to him, what else is out there on any particular subject that he might be making a film about. And so uh, we always had the intention to make it, but we just never had the time and our calendars weren't coinciding. And finally in August of 2014. So when when was that first, like you you approached Mark about it? Was it like 10 years ago? No, no, it was over 10 years ago. It was 
It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I had it in every contract on every job that I took that I was allowed to do a documentary on the side, but we just... We're busy. It, yeah. you know, it's a lot of work to do a documentary. And Tons of work. I feel like there needs to be a documentary about people doing documentary <laughs> because... It's very consuming. A every documentary that you see is a labor of love for the filmmaker in involved. It's it's a passion project and something they're deeply committed to. It, it, it's You couldn't get through it otherwise. I, well, uh, four years of doing the same thing and having to get so in depth into it, like you would have to love it. Like I couldn't do it about broccoli or anything. <laughs> You'd yeah, have to do it about something you're truly five and a half years of working on this film now. Five and a half years. Yeah. I don't want to jump ahead, but like, I mean, I guess it'll never be done because this is such no, an, uh, no, no, no. this, but at the same time, I mean, editing is done. You've launched it. You're now probably wrapping up a little bit of the, of the marketing junket We're part of it. We're getting toward the end of the marketing that it's gonna be sad. That is still going on and the impact campaign trying to get it out there because the subject is so big that it can be utilized in a lot of different spheres that touch foster care. I mean, that's the thing about foster care that it's not just social workers, it's social workers, lawyers, judges, educators, um, public health, law enforcement, the medical community. Uh, there are just so many different people, the congregations, the faith-based community, and community members. So you want to reach out to all of those people. And the great thing for us, and then there's a political aspect to, of it too, because there are laws governing foster care from county to county, state to state. And so... We're fortunate to be able to connect with all of those different constituencies, and that's um, that takes a lot of time and effort. Yeah, there, you didn't even mention the actual kids <laughs> and the bio parents <laughs> involved. Yes, too. I'm sorry. Thank you for pointing that out. No, but that that's the Absolutely, so most important of anything are the parents, the children. And the foster parents. But I mean, Absolutely. that's this. I mean, that's through the core is. But like, there's so many other people involved. Like, you're so right that. And then I'm not going to lie to you. I was skeptical because you see lots of document, not documentaries, but you see things about foster care. And in the media, it's done totally. It's only the bad that comes out. And then you see other things, and you're kind of like, well, you didn't really tell the truth either. Kind of stuff. I was really happy with how foster came out. Like it was a really good depiction of what foster care is. And I understand it couldn't be all of it. Like you, you don't need to say the negative of it because the media does that very well and very poorly, you know, like, and there's couldn't, certain stories you couldn't touch just because of time and certain stories you couldn't touch because of the safety, like the safety issues of all of it. But what you did touch was dead on accurate of how well, it thank is. Thank you for that. Our feeling was that, an awful lot of the public never touches the foster care system. They never meet a child. They never meet a family. And they don't encounter the system. So what they know, they learn from the press. And unfortunately, um, but understandably, a lot of the stories that make it into the press are the tragedies, the fatalities. And that absolutely needs to be reported. 
it needs to have attention drawn to it. But the consequence of that is for the public to throw their hands up in despair, that they think things are so messed up if the um, participants in the system can't prevent this from happening, what could they possibly do? And they turn away. And we wanted to put a human face on on the population and to try to turn that despair into engagement. If you could meet these foster youth, if you could meet the parents, if you could meet the foster parents, if you could meet the workers, maybe you could gain a greater understanding and a greater appreciation and then engage, engage according to your capacity. We recognize that not everybody can do what you've done and what Mrs. Beavers, the inspirational foster mother in our movie, has done, but can you mentor? Can you volunteer? Can you participate in a Christmas drive? Can you help a kid with a resume? Can you, you know, donate clothing? Like There's so many different things that can be done, and it has to be done according to a person's capacity with the hope that they will continue to do it. And that was certainly one of our goals in making this movie, to turn the narrative from saying these are other people's children to saying they're our children, and to say that they have the right to thrive, not just to survive. And that's what lots of foster kids are forced into doing is just surviving. Like, I love that you included Desani's story, because I feel like so many, that demographic, especially in foster care, is has a negative like people have a negative viewpoint of these teenagers just being off crazy and in in juvenile you know attainment and all these kind of things when in reality he's just a kid who needs to be loved and guided and if someone believed in him he would go somewhere because he has potential every kid has potential so Dasani in our movie um for any of your listeners who haven't seen the movie yet. well they should have already all seen it we did an amazing review and totally they, they should have seen it by now okay <laughs> that's right but go ahead go ahead so you know when, when the government removes a child from a situation then they have a responsibility to put that child in a safe permanent sustaining family and for Dasani like a lot of other children, he has bounced around f- to too many homes. And Judge Michael Nash, who was the former presiding judge of the Los Angeles foster care system, uh, of the Los Angeles Children's Court for 25 years, will say that a child who doesn't have a permanent placement is a failure of the system. And so, You know, we haven't talked yet about my motivation in doing this, and I hope we'll get to talk about Patrick, the youth in my life, but children need to grow up in a household where they get love, they get attention, they get to see good decisions being made all day long, every day, so that they learn how to make good decisions in their lives, and you know, have the hop- the opportunity for an education, have the opportunity for good medical care, all of that. And when you move around from home to home to home, and when you're in a group home, which is not the same as a foster placement no, or an adoptive placement, then that 
impermanence is really, really consequential and damaging. I'm glad to see that the the foster care system, like the courts are seeing, like going in that direction of realizing how much one placement and attachment makes a difference to a child's life. A good placement, yeah. Yeah. I think that trauma and attachment are important important issues in these disrupted lives. And so I, I do think there has been a recognition of that and a movement to address that and to become more educated and aware of that. And to go back to what you said we accomplished in the film, there are over 400,000 children currently in, for, in foster care. There's no way we could have taken on all those stories because that means there are over 400,000 huh. stories. Somebody told me when we were just starting out, you cannot have more than three stories in your movie. And three was just too few. So we tried to represent five different stories that could take place anywhere in the nation or anywhere in the world. And um, we're very pleased to have had those stories. The, the response to those stories has been tremendous. But there are definitely stories that we couldn't tell because every person is, indi- is an individual. Every person is different. There was no way, even between the five that you chose, like which two would you have had to cut out would have been hard as it is. <laughs> like you already had to cut out more. That's just in- insane. I love that you had different stories that were, I mean, the theme of it all was the same, but this that were totally different. You know, the young couple that has a drug-exposed baby, like all that kind of, like the different types allowed, I think, as a foster parent for us to get into the lives of not only the foster kid, but also the biological parent, especially with me. Like I, I definitely struggled. There's moments where I'm very upset at birth mom for drinking because she causes to my son. And there's other moments where I have deep empathy for her because she didn't know any better. And she herself needed to be guided and, and, and didn't, she was also could have had a different life if the foster care system she got put into the foster care system and whatnot. Anyways, long story. We're not going to go there. We do, with that couple, Chris and Rayanne, um, we did try to show the societal forces that they were up against because foster care is so much an issue of poverty. Um, yes. Mental health, addiction. That Those are the reasons why most children wind up in foster care. And in the case of Chris and Rayanne, Chris was born to a 15-year-old mother. Uh, Rayanne grew up in a household witnessing domestic violence and having to shield her siblings from it. They were homeless. They were impoverished. They were unemployed at the point that um, they had their child. And Rayanne had deep, deep, deep remorse about what she did, and then the question becomes, can they demonstrate to the court, can they work toward a point of illustrating that they have now um, been educated and and have changed their ways so that they can be a good parent. In their case, scene spoiler, <laughs> they got their child back, and I think in the movie we see that that was warranted, the uh, it's one of the things about this entire world that 
the there's plasticity to the brain, so you don't want to give up on the children by any means. It's not their fault that they wound up in foster care, and no. and they can continue to with the right services and the right interventions to um, overcome this really really rough, tough uh, start in life. But we've also seen a lot of addicted parents and a lot of challenged parents with the right services, right with the right help, with the right support, um, get to a point where they can be responsible, dedicated, loving parents. I think the whole trend in child services is now to move toward a preventative model. There is a law that went into effect on October 1st, the um, Family First Prevention Services Act, the word prevention is in the title of the act, and um, it's about trying to get parents help so that children don't have to be removed, families don't have to be separated, and in the case where that's called for and that's warranted, yes, I think that there are instances where you do need to remove a child and see if the parents can work their way back toward getting their child back. It's a really human system. You have humans making decisions about other humans, and it's very, very imperfect. What we learned is that things have come very far, and they have very far to go. They still have, yes. Yes. (laughs) I always like to say that the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals existed before the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. It's amazing. And it's because I think people are scared to act in a weird way. Like, an animal is like, if you act or not, it's easier to do. But when you're looking at a child, it seems so daunting, and it's such a big, I don't want to say undertaking, because it, it is a big undertaking when you take a child, you know, more than 18 years and everything. But... I don't know how to express myself right now, but the idea, I think it's scary for people it to support scary to people. foster very care. It's a scary subject, and there are a lot of eyes on children and families, and people need to speak up. I mean, whether it's the congregation, the neighbor, the teachers in the school, doctors who are examining children, there are a lot of people who have eyes on these households, and... Oh, yeah, it's parenting. We should be speaking up before things go too far. Completely. And then as a foster parent, it's like you're parenting in a fishbowl. Because, you know, I'm parenting, but I also have social workers coming. Yeah. I Since we did it through a private agency, I had social workers coming every other week. And then I had the county social worker coming every month. And then because of his special needs, we are going to the doctor every month. And it was just like all these other people which is in one area, great, takes a village. In the other area, I'm like, can I just do things the way I think I should be doing things <laughs> kind of thing? Um, this as a foster parent, you also have all these rules. You're not allowed to cut their hair. You're not allowed to do all these things without permission. Every doctor's appointment has to have three forms to be filled out so that everyone knows. So the judge is aware of everything going on and the bio parents are aware of everything that's going on. It's Everybody knows what's going on except the caseloads are enormous. The number of people in care is enormous and... Nobody has enough time to pay attention to each of these cases that warrant a lot of care. The judges make decisions in minutes. The social workers can't get to 
all the children and families they need to be seeing to really sit down and take the time that it needs. That's why CASA exists, court-appointed special advocates who are fantastic. Um, But it's an overburdened system. The opening scene where you hear all the little, the voices of the calls of all the kids, like just the initial contact calls of someone reporting something, all of those, and then going through with all the files that you just see of every social worker. It was, I was just like, wow. Like I was happy to know that a lot of foster agencies are going to be showing this to people because it's, you have to get yourself into mind as a foster parent. You're so, you have your view of like, you do the day to day taking care of this child who needs so much more than any other child. And then you have to do all this other stuff that most parents don't do of like the forms and visits and all this kind of stuff. So you're, you know, fishbowl parenting. So it takes effort for you to go, okay, the social worker who's two hours late is two hours late because they had 10 other cases to see today and they have all this other stuff and juggling it. And then when they come into the room, they may not be in a good mood because they just had to deal with a court or whatever. Like it was nice to see it visually to give them so much more grace and so much more patience on yeah. their side because it's easy for as a foster parent to get angry they're like well this is the kid like it's a kid's life at stake my kid's life at stake that I'm taking care of 24 hours a day that I love unconditionally like why aren't you doing what you need to do but in reality it's like they are they're doing majority of them are doing the best they can overloaded and saturated with work so it's great to see that visual so that we as foster parents could give so much more grace to these social workers and what they're doing I mean, the hotline was intended to show the volume of calls and the magnitude of it. And even social workers who work in the field have never been inside that hotline and haven't seen it. What what we saw that, I think we met a lot of awfully good social workers and dedicated judges, dedicated um, attorneys who have made this decision to to give themselves to this world, to this life. But but there's a built-in challenge, which is the recovery that the people working in, in this world need um, because of all the uh, toxicity that they're taking and the vicarious trauma. Oh, yeah. And so they have to have boundaries and they have to turn off. But... How do you do that? You're not having problems. Kids are not having problems on a working schedule. There's something called 440, where some social workers work a 40-hour week in four days. So that means they're not working, let's say, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or they're not working Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Well, then what happens when something happens on one of those days? So the comple- what we learned from making the movie is how big it is and how complex complex it is yeah and um i i think that there are very good people and um and they need a lot of help i also think that one of the things that we saw are the biases and the judgments and the stereotypes that people come into this world about, whether it's about the children, the parents, 
the foster parents, the social workers. We heard it from the doctors. We heard one of the doctors say that after having seen the film, he would look at a mother who did drugs when she was pregnant in a different way that um, and not be so quick to judge. The probation officers said that they wanted their recruits and probation officers to see the movie so that they understand that it's not just one act that landed a child on probation or in the juvenile justice system. There is a bigger context surrounding that. So in the case of Dasani, he witnessed his mother's murder when he was four years old. He's bounced from home to home to home. That might he be reacting? Might he be acting out after a childhood like that? Might we be judging him in a way that a child in an intact family doesn't get judged when they go? and do something, and and one of the attorneys makes the point in that movie. But I do want to tell you about the youth in my life. Oh, I want to hear. Which is why we did this movie. So his name is Patrick. I met him when he was six years old. My mother had just passed away, and I was really grief-stricken. And so I walked away from my television career for a, a time and wanted to do something meaningful. And so I started volunteering in my local public school, and Patrick was in a special ed class. And I worked with each of the kids in the class, but Patrick really stood out to me. He was a leader. He was positive, cheerful. And so when my time finally came to an end and I was going to go back to work, had to go back to work, I asked the teacher on my way out the door what Patrick's story was and why he was in that class, and she explained to me that Patrick had been removed from his parents' care, that he was living in an orphanage in Hollywood called Hollygrove, which Marilyn Monroe lived in for a time. little side note. Oh, wow. Um, and I went home sobbing. I had never encountered... Uh, I had never encountered somebody living in an orphanage or foster youth... And I resolved to... I want to ask a question real fast. Did you know anything about foster care before meeting nothing. Patrick? Like, nothing. possibly knew it existed and that was well, it. Of like, course. That was it. Like, no... What you hear in the news, what you see in the culture, what you see in movies or read in articles. Um, but no, I didn't. So what was your vision? I, and I had... My school was very big in special ed, so we all took special ed courses in school and had... Um, been nominally educated about uh, abuse and um, and still barely touched things like that but no I was not educated about it I was not uh, I, I did not have um, people in my life or experience so I went home and I resolved to continue to stay in touch with Patrick and to continue to work with him so fast forward to the movie, I felt that if I had never encountered a foster youth, if I had never encountered the system, then there are an awful lot of people out there who had never done yeah. that, and maybe that would be worthy of a subject for a movie, and and Mark agreed. As far as Patrick goes, um, I started out visiting him at Hollygrove. I was what was called a special friend, 
and I would come. I would go to, first I went to class every week, and I would be allowed to take him out of class and read to him. Then the issue of Christmas and summer breaks came up, and I didn't want my visits to end. So then I became what was called a special friend and had to go through a process with the orphanage to be approved and allowed to come on the premises and, and then eventually to get to take Patrick out to do the most ordinary things, fly a kite on the beach, bake cookies, um, dig for bugs in the backyard, what, all kinds of things. And it's now been 25 years. Oh, wow. Patrick is 31 years old. He's a tremendous success story. Um, I am not patting myself on the back, but he has had the benefit of one consistent caring adult in his life, and we have come to learn how important that is for children who have touched the system. Um, He also was fostered at the age of 10, by a woman named Terry, who ultimately adopted him at the age of 15, which is extremely unusual. And she also fostered and adopted his biological brother and two other boys. And then when he was 18, he left the house. He um, served in with the Marines. He enlisted in the Marines. He went to Iraq. And when he came out was the first time he became serious about his education. Up until then, he had not been. And now he is very, very committed to getting a good education. And he has um, gone to L.A. Trade Tech for mechanical engineering. And in September, he started at Cal State L.A. for a degree in mechanical engineering. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, the statistics for children in foster care are that less than 4% of foster children achieve a four-year degree by the time they're 26 years old. So I think that's improving. I was just in Washington, D.C. with a former foster youth who's an attorney. I mean, that's even more unusual, but, but I have met many people who are that accomplished. And so Patrick is yet another one of them, and I would put him up against any child anywhere for honor, trust, dignity, loyalty, sense of humor, friendship. Uh, when other people run out, Patrick runs in. And he's, he's a gift and a treasure in my life. I don't think foster kids are given the credit that they deserve of being so resilient and growing up so fast that one given the opportunity of people who are taking them on as loving them condition, like unconditionally, consistently and being an impact in their life how it makes them so much stronger yeah. and it makes them so much more like I look at my daughters and I'm like man you advocate for yourself I'm still learning how to do that <laughs> you know 40 yeah. something years old like Patrick is a tremendous advocate they learn to take care such depth and uh, I have met so many foster youth and former foster youth who just knock me out with their depth and their sweetness and their compassion there's so many of them out there and we just we really need to see them and value them and hear them and I don't think we realize how much we're surrounded by it in our culture in our um whether it's in movies and you're seeing 
James Bond was a former foster youth. Simone Biles is a former foster oh, youth. Yeah. Tiffany Haddish, Eddie Murphy, um, Jamie Foxx. Uh, the list just goes on and on and on. And I don't just restrict it to people who have come to the attention of the system and who have been removed. There are there are millions of people who have had disrupted childhoods, disrupted lives, and maybe they haven't come to the attention of the authorities and been removed, but there are a lot of people out there who have experienced trauma and attachment, and I think we all have to open our eyes to that and 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 change our attitudes and judgments about that. I would imagine just being seen as someone who can be resilient and stronger versus the delinquent child who's going to end up in prison. Like that, that viewpoint in itself can change a track of life, you know, like just being able to support versus judge, which is what we tend to do as a society. It seems like not here on the podcast. I now look that there were, um, there were two convicts who escaped a prison in upstate New York with the help of a guard and they're on the run for a while. Um, and I think they were finally captured. And when you looked at this saga that was unfolding like a movie, they had committed terrible crimes, really violent, terrible crimes. And when I see that now sometimes, I will look to see, do they, do they talk about the person's trajectory in life? Where did that person come from? And... I, you, I worry. I wonder, what are the consequences of not bringing stability and help and love and care and services and attention to people who, by no fault of their own, children who wind up in the system and then don't get the care that they need. What are the bad consequences of that? What is the hope and the positive um, achievements that could come if we get it right and if we do the right thing? Who can these people be? And they can be tremendous. Yes. I don't know. Yes, yes. I don't know what to say to that because that's... I hope my daughters in the future can look at their story and not look at it as a shameful thing of they were foster kids, but instead look at it as like, this is what my story was. This is what happened to me, what made me stronger. And this is how I'm going to advocate for those in the future. And being that example of resilience and I mean, everyone wants their kids to be, have the success story, obviously, but just, I want people to be like, Oh, you're a foster kid. Like that doesn't make any sense. You know, and then also counteract like, oh, but you were, you know, you brought to us at nine months old. Like, that's different. Like, no, there's still tons of loss that happened and tons of trauma that happened regardless that they came into our home at nine months old or three weeks old with Jackson, you know. So it's exciting when you see this movie like this that can change the platforms, not just one person at a time, but like millions of people at a time and getting into the the deep of it of social workers and probation officers and medical and you know like everyone who's involved in these kids lives can now look at it with empathy and compassion and think have a second thought of like 
maybe my stereotype is wrong and I can look at this person with potential rather than the negative that we've perceived kind of thing, which is um, huge as I cry. Of course, podcasters, I'm crying. um, There's a federal grant that has... um, that is supporting the creation of a foster and adopt training manual. And we're very hopeful of being part of that so that where needed, new foster parents can be recruited, but then that they can be trained and, and get the help they need. And then they have to go through reaccreditation that maybe parts of the movie can be used to help them see because... You certainly don't want foster parents to come into this without their eyes wide open. It is a, it is a challenge. It's a big deal, but it's incredibly rewarding as well. And so what is it that they need to know? And we would be really proud to be part of that where the movie is being used at medical conferences for adolescent health and um, the Los Angeles Department of Children and Family Services mandated that this movie be seen by all their workers. There's a judge in New York State who's helping to improve the courts in New York. There's 62 counties, and 25 of them have signed up to be part of improving the children's courts. They want to use the movie, so... Um, that would be my greatest thrill if this movie could be used for good. And then there are things that we'll never know. We'll never know who yeah. saw this movie and decided to become a foster parent or a social worker or who, or a child who didn't feel so alone, who saw that there were other people out there or parents who took some measure of hope that maybe things will work out for them and their family will be restored or another family that can be prevented from being torn apart. So there's a lot that could come of it. It's it's a big job, and um, we're doing it in baby steps. But That's all you can do, one step at a time. So what does Patrick think about you doing this all because of him? Patrick's so deeply proud of this movie and of having been the impetus to it, the inspiration. He remembers exactly where he was standing when I told him I was finally getting started with it. There's a credit at the end of the movie that is inspired by Patrick Perkins. He, you know, he has brought all kinds of friends and teachers and um, other people to the movie. He has a lot of uh, a lot of his friends have had disrupted childhoods, so he's brought them to it. Um, doctors, teachers, a, a lot of the people in Patrick's lives have come around to seeing the film, but he loves that there are parts of his story. So Patrick was born drug exposed. It's you know, how I became aware of it and became aware of the impact and consequence of that. So we show a newborn baby who was drug exposed, but then we show an 18-year-old girl who's at the other end of it, and what has that meant in her life as she ages out of the system? So there's so many different ways that Patrick has inspired the film. We wanted open cases ongoing, and so for that reason, Patrick wasn't in the movie, but Patrick's imprint is all over the movie. 
Uh, This is so I'm glad Patrick entered your life because he's now changed the world. Well, that uh, nobody has ever said that to me, and that is fantastic. I'm glad Patrick has entered my life because he's made me a better person. I mean, I will walk Patrick down the aisle when he gets married, and he'll feed me when I can no longer feed myself. I mean, uh, we have a standing appointment now to get together every Friday. Um, he has his own life and his friendships and a fantastic girlfriend and a course of study, but we both figure very, very, very heavily in each other's lives, and I get to see him all the time. I speak to him all the time. I spoke to him on the way here. That's just amazing to me. The relationship you have is even probably, because it's not a traditional mother-son relationship, it allows so much more to be said and to be trusted and to be in it which is huge. Like I'm hoping that my daughters want to have a standing date with me every Friday when they're old and doing their schooling and whatnot, you know, but the same time I went through our challenges. There's no question about it. I mean, he and I disagreed and fought and absolutely. But I think what Patrick did not know at first and came to understand was that I wasn't going away. And I didn't know that about myself either and now that he's 31 years old he's a man he's mature I and I love our conversations and I do have the benefit of he does listen to me he does take in and say what I hear I mean not all the time I could have a friend come along and say the same thing and (laughs) say it better and say it differently and that gets through to him but it's a really, really, really rewarding give-and-take relationship where I get to impact him and he learns things from me, and I definitely learn things from him. That's just amazing. I just love the I, I have to say I recognized something in Patrick when I met him as a six-year-old boy, so I can't take credit for it. He, he was... He was already a a version of who he would grow up to be at that early age. I certainly wanted to give him a biography. I wanted to make sure he had childhood photographs, that he had favorite homework, a favorite pair of sneakers, a favorite toy. Favorite homework? I don't think any kid has favorite homework. Not favorite homework, but maybe (laughs) maybe a little... You wanted him to have a childhood. That was starred... You know, that a teacher oh, yes. a star on it, a little certificate. Something like, to put on the I, fridge. I have all those things, and he knows that I have a favorite Star Wars toy of his. I have favorite books that he read. But, you know, I, I, I think that you have that experience of people telling you all the time how wonderful you are and how great you are for what you've done. There were people who would say to me, in how great it was and that's hard to take in oh it is I don't think that's good for me to to start believing but what one of his teachers said to me early on which I did believe was that Patrick knew he had to account to me that he had me somewhere on his shoulders and so for the decisions he could make that could be 
bad decisions that could take him down a bad path that he knew he would have to come back and answer to me. And that I do believe. And I, I do think that that kept him from going down those paths that a, a kid could go down and get themselves in trouble as they're, you know. Well, he had a parent. Yeah. Like he had a parent. It may not have been a legally assigned by the court parent, but he had a parent. Right. He had Terry, you know, from 10 to when he left her house, and he has had me at the same time. I mean, I would joke with Terry that we were co-parenting him. I definitely do feel like a mom to him, and he definitely views me as his mom. And then there was also Terry, who was calling him on his stuff and um, holding him to a certain standard. But when Patrick was in high school, we had the school tell me at one point that Patrick may not be able to get a diploma, that Patrick may only get be able to have a certificate of completion, and we have to accept that. We have to be satisfied with that. And I thought about it, and I thought, not my kid. And, <laughs> and then I thought, am I imposing my values? Am I raising Patrick to, holding Patrick to a standard that, he can't fulfill. And then I thought, no, Patrick's not putting on his gym clothes. He's not going to class. <laughs> I mean, that's part of why he's getting bad grades. And Patrick has to do that. And we have to be on him in the way that any other parent would be on their kid to live up to what they need to um, fulfill at the same time. And and. I don't think Patrick knew what a diploma would mean to him. And when he got that diploma, was such a moment of pride for him to be in his cap and gown and to take the photographs with Terry and with one of the other brothers in the family and me and one of the tutors who had helped him get to that point. It was fantastic. And I think when people set these low expectations for you, which sometimes happens to yeah. these kids and to these parents, you have to really struggle not to to take that in and believe that and to think, no, I, I get to have better. And I think that's the point, that these children and families get to thrive, not just survive. That's a hard balance of trying to find that line of where you're pushing them, but you're also allowing yeah. them to have success yeah. because you don't want to have the goal be too crazy because then the low self-esteem and all that stuff. But at the same time, you, you need to push them to be, a, yeah, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> I'm still figuring. You, you're constantly checking in with yourself and having conversations yeah. with yourself. That's so amazing, though, that you got to be that for Patrick. Like, and you have, I don't even know what I want to say. It's like, it just hearing you talk about how proud he was and then you realizing like, do I need to like doing the introspection is like, it's amazing that he had someone like that in his life because lots of these foster, especially in group homes, like they saw he was lucky that he got a couple people on his side, you know, but those people turn over and the burnout of work and everything. Like it was awesome that you made that commitment to Patrick so that he could have that constant in it. And not to say it's your grade or anything. I'm just saying like, that's what these kids need and whether or not it's like, 
and you did it in a way that was able to fulfill your capacity. Like you didn't adopt him. You did it in a way that worked for you guys. And I feel like people don't think of it that way either. They think, oh, I have to be a foster parent and adopt. And it's like, well, no, like you can be a foster care for those 10 years or you could be the support or you could be the CASA or you could just be that adult life that does it once a week or once a month. Like there's so many ways it could look like for these kids to have consistency. It doesn't have to be the 24 hours a day that foster parents do. Yeah. You know, I think if somebody has said to me, make a five-year commitment at that point in my career and how busy I was with work and how ambitious I was, I, I'm glad I never had to have that conversation. I just never left. And I did make a commitment to Patrick, but if somebody tried to pin me down and ask me, I don't know what my answer would have been. And that's why I always say people have to get involved according to their capacity. They have to do, I mean, go ahead and reach and stretch to your greatest capacity. That's fantastic. But you have to know what you can do. Because I I would never have wanted to leave Patrick. That would have been devastating. That, that would have been awful. That's one of the triggers I had in your movie, actually, because you see people like Beavers, Mrs. Beavers, and you, you think when you start this journey that that's where you're going to be. Like, you're going to be the revolving door with all these kids, and you're going to change all these lives. And then you get the three, and you're like, tap out, I'm done. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. And you have to come to grips with that, like that my story isn't supposed to be Mrs. Beavers who has hundreds of kids go through her house. Like, it's okay that my story only affected these three and then those three will affect more and still have the ripple effect. But you have to, like, talk yourself into that. Like, you're doing what you can do and what you can do. As long as you are feeling good about yourself, knowing that you're reaching your capacity and, like you said, grow to be the the biggest capacity that you can fill, then that's all we can ask, you know? It's hard to do to begin with. And you go and you take on something that you can't do, how are you going to do it? You know, you want to be the best version of yourself that you could be in doing this and try to give that to your children or to the child you're mentoring or... Or even the support to the foster parents who are doing it daily, like any of that. There's so many ways. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, I'm crying again. I'm a crier, though. I should have warned you about that before starting the podcast. It's an emotional subject, but it's... I wouldn't want people to shy away from the subject. I think people have fears about um, conversations around foster care, and I think it can be a great, compassionate, hopeful conversation to have. And uh, to be emotional is okay. It's all right. I'm glad because I am. Isn't that amazing? I know you want to hear the second half. However, you're going to have to wait till tomorrow, or not in tomorrow, I, I don't know. You're going to have to wait until it comes out. I don't know when you're listening to this, so maybe it is going to be in the next two minutes. You don't have to wait at all, but more than likely, it's going to be in a week because you're up to date with the, the Nile Bus podcast, so you're going to have to wait for part two, so keep an eye out for it. Thanks for riding on the Nile Bus. But your stop's coming up. You're going to have to get off. Get back to the real world. Life. But don't worry. You got this. 